0: Welcome to the Sheriff Lawless and Some Guy Named Dave podcast, the interview series. Hope everyone is staying safe and sound during this quarantine period. And our guest here in the interview series today is Kenny Albert, radio voice of the New York Rangers, also a main voice of the NHL on NBC. Uh, A lot of different things Kenny does. Baseball for Fox, football for Fox. There's really not much he doesn't do. Kenny, thanks for taking the time to uh, join us here today. And I I trust, um, All is good with you in lovely New Jersey. How have you been passing the time over the last month or so?
1: Well, Dave, all is good here. And it's been 35 days now since the last broadcast on March 11th. And I know we spoke earlier in the week, and you were on the road as well. And I was in Denver with the New York Rangers. They played the Avalanche on Wednesday night, March 11th. And the team stayed over. They were scheduled to fly to Phoenix, Arizona for a game on Saturday and wound up staying over in Denver. We flew home on March 12th, and here we are, 35 days later. So similar to, uh, I'm sure, a lot of broadcasters around the league and other folks who travel with sports clubs for a living, uh, who are not necessarily used to being home for this long of a period. Um, A lot of uh, walking, listening to some podcasts, which I never really had (laughs) much time to do in the past, uh, getting the home office organized a little bit doing some other cleaning and reading and watching the news and watching television. And obviously, first and foremost, hopefully everybody is uh, safe in your neck of the woods as well. But every day is a little bit like Groundhog Day. You wake up and it's sort of the same thing. You don't know what day of the week it is, but everybody's healthy here. We're about 15 miles outside New York City and obviously keeping an eye on what's going on there. But uh, all good here in northern New Jersey.
0: Uh, Do you have a routine? You know, you mentioned it seems like it's Groundhog Day. You've done some walks. Um, Do do you have a a routine you've tried to get yourself into, or how do you, day-to-day, does it change for you?
1: Sort of, not necessarily doing things at the same time every day. We also have a Peloton bike, so I've uh, certainly gone on that a lot more than the other, uh, you know, last four or five years ever since we purchased it. My wife and daughters uh, use it all the time, but we're on the road, right? We're in hotels, and we're away so from home. So you're pacing home.
0: yourself on the Peloton. Right, we're you're away from home all the time, so I've probably been on it
1: more in the last three months than I've been on it uh, prior to that, over a three- to four-year stretch. But I uh, usually wake up around the same time, 8, 8.30, sometimes earlier, sometimes a little bit later, and uh, turn on the news, turn on CNN, uh, watch the Andrew Cuomo press conferences, the governor of New York usually comes on about 11 or noon Eastern time every day and uh, read a couple of real newspapers. I'm old school, so I still have newspapers delivered. Also read a lot online and always try to do a little bit of cleaning. Uh, The home office, we've lived here for 20 years and and things just pile up and you don't have a lot of time to get to them. So I've, I've thrown out some files from 2003 and 2004. I found some old bills from uh, 2006, 2007. It's it's kind of crazy what you never have time to go through, um, and I'm sure similar to you, I have old newspapers and magazines and programs and media guides and game notes from sporting events, and you say, wind up saving some of the important ones. But uh, I've I've actually made a number of trips to the recycling center um, here in here in our town with with bags and bags of. Uh, some of the stuff I just mentioned, newspapers, magazines, and uh, some other uh, files that I found that I don't necessarily need to save.
0: I know you tweeted out, Kenny, that some of the things that you found in the Albert archives and some old T-shirts, what were some of the more interesting items that you found in this vast collection of stuff you have?
1: I have had some time, Dave, to go through the closet as well. And uh, (laughs) I I definitely held on to some of the Baltimore Skipjacks paraphernalia uh, t-shirts and sweatpants and a pair of shorts none of it really fits anymore but i i just can't i can't uh find a good reason to throw any of that away but um did probably fill up two or three garbage bags of, of t-shirts and uh kept a couple of them the, the macon whoopie a minor league team down in georgia good friend dave starman was a broadcaster and an assistant coach with the macon whoopie back in the late 90s so i held on to that one and um other Shirts that might have sentimental value as well. But I did donate about three fullbacks to charity. You know what I thought was great was, um uh, again, on on the Twitters,
0: an old um, Baltimore skipjack. You mentioned uh, your time in Baltimore in the early 90s. Todd Halushko dug up this video of you
1: interviewing Herb Brooks. W- w- did you know that existed? And what what's that all about? Well, that was during the 91-92 season and I often think back to that interview it was one of the rare television games that we did in Baltimore I was there for two years and we worked out a deal with a local cable access station City Cable in Baltimore we would do one or two games each year on TV on delayed tape and we would uh, drive the tapes down to home team sports in Bethesda, Maryland they did the Capitals games and the Orioles and the Bullets at the time who are now the Wizards and they would run the game three or four times uh, the next day, two days later. But it gave the hockey fans in the area a chance to see some of the minor leaguers who were uh, property of the Capitals at the time. They were the Washington affiliate. So one of the games we did on TV happened to be against the Utica Devils during the 91-92 season who were coached by Herb Brooks. He had already coached in the NHL in New York with the Rangers. He had coached the Minnesota North Stars. Uh, I think after that season, he wound up coaching the Devils and then the Pittsburgh Penguins as well. So he was uh, in between NHL jobs at the time, and the Devils hired him to work in Utica. And I know you did games in the Baltimore Arena as well back in the day. And uh, to the right of the broadcast booth, on one end of the arena behind the goal, there were no seats. There was a stage. It was built you know, way back in the 50s and The NBA team, the Baltimore Bullets at the time, played there throughout the 60s and the early 70s until they moved down to Landover, Maryland. But it was a very distinct uh, building because it had this stage on one end. And uh, this happened to be one of the television games that we did. And we set up a couple of chairs on the stage and taped a pregame interview with Herb Brooks. Uh, And I'll never forget, it was probably one of the first TV interviews that I ever did. And I'll never uh, forget the feeling how nervous I was. I was 12 years old in 1980, watching the miracle on ice. This was only 11 years later. So now I'm 23 and I'm interviewing uh, the legendary coach, Herb Brooks, and he couldn't have been more gracious. And I probably have a VHS tape somewhere in a box in storage from that game, but it would take me uh, uh, probably 10 years to find it or a couple more quarantines. But uh, Todd Halusco, who played for the Skipjacks, who was a third and fourth line winger, who wound up... Playing, I would say, a couple of hundred games in the NHL. He played with Philadelphia, with Calgary, and maybe one other team. Might have spent some time in Toronto. And uh, he posted this on Twitter last week. He played in the game, so he, I guess, had a VHS tape of this game and uh, during the quarantine popped it into the, into the uh, VHS machine, VCR, and uh, wound up posting it on Twitter. I had not seen that interview probably since that night or at least the week after when it was replayed on television.
0: Did, so was there banter with her, Brooks before or after the interview? Did he know of you maybe through your dad a little bit? Like how, how was that? What
1: was that dynamic? Uh, Possibly. Um, I noticed in the clip, he referred to me by name two or three times, which, which was pretty interesting because an interview subject (laughs) does not always do it maybe more than once. So perhaps he did. I remember. Um, introducing myself, I don't know if we went, we must've gone through a PR director or somebody with the team to line up the interview. But again, just judging from what I watched on, on Todd Holusco's Twitter, uh, Herb Brooks could not have been more gracious about it.
0: Well, it's must see television for those that have not seen it. It's, uh, it was really a, really a treat. Uh, you know, Kenny, I mentioned at the beginning, you're one of the busiest sportscasters in the country with calling all four of the, of the major sports to have this all cease at the same time for all of us, you know, I always think of it as, especially during the hockey season for us, you're either doing a game or traveling to one or preparing for another one. And you're as busy as anybody to have it all cease at the same time. What's this been like for you?
1: It is bizarre. Um, There were certain times of the year and, and this would have been one of them where I'm really busy and hardly ever home during a two month stretch. And you would have been right in the middle of the first round of the, Playoffs with the Golden Knights, I'm sure, and uh, I think it would have been around Game four or five of the first round as we tape this on April fifteenth. So uh, this would have been one of those periods uh, where, and if the Rangers, the team that I do radio for, if they had made the playoffs, uh, it would have been even busier because I, I probably would have bounced back and forth uh, between the Rangers and some NBC SN games in the first round, and then I wind up working. Uh, two more rounds on the TV side, and then the Stanley Cup on Westwood One, and you're involved with Westwood One deep into the playoffs as well, working one of the conference final series. So it definitely is strange when you look at the calendar and and see that it's April fifteenth, and we're sitting at home. But um, it, again, it's been thirty five days, and it's almost like we're all in a in a timeout. You know, we all have such busy lives and. Uh, now we can't really go anywhere. Uh, we're not working. Um, fortunately, uh, you and I and our families are both healthy. But uh, it, it, I think the first week was probably uh, more strange. I think we've all probably gotten used to it as it's moved along. Um, you know, We have a lot of time off as, as hockey broadcasters in the summer. I do some baseball uh, oftentimes once a week, but I'm home the other four or five days and then travel on the sixth day. So this kind of feels like the summer months. I'm sure it does for you as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's bizarre, Uh, in particular, this time of the year. I opened up my briefcase the other day for the first time, and it was like time stood still on March 11th, that last game, Rangers in Colorado. And I had some of the statistics sheets and and the game notes and and, uh, the card that I prepare for every game. And it was uh, sitting there in the folder as it was on March 11th. And I think it was about a month later when I unzipped that briefcase for the first time. And it was sort of strange. You know, we're so used to... Uh, going to practices and and going to the home games and then getting on the plane and the bus and traveling to the away games I know you guys have have been doing this podcast and keeping busy and having some meetings with the folks that you work with uh, something that we've done with the Rangers crew there are nine of us between the uh, on-air personnel on the tv and radio side and then the four production guys who we travel with and They've all been with us for 5, 10, 15 years. We've done a weekly Zoom every Tuesday at 5.30. Looks like the Brady Bunch on the screen with the nine boxes, but it's <laughs> it's Sam Rosen and Joe Micheletti, who are the television uh, broadcasters, and John Gianone who's the sideline reporter, and then myself and Dave Maloney, we do the radio and uh, the four production guys. And we, we've stayed on for over an hour each time just, uh, you know, asking everybody about their family, telling stories, speculating about – when we might come back, but at least it keeps you in touch, uh, as so many of us have, have done with Zoom over the last month, uh, keeps you in touch with the folks that you're so used to being with each and every day this time of the year.
0: I find, Kenny, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, I miss the routine of it, right? Just the day-to-day, you know, we, we're all creatures of habit, and, and and certainly we're we're lucky enough to to do this for a living. But I miss, you know, going over to the practice rink for the Golden Knights, talking with the players, talking with the coaches, getting ready to do games, doing the games themselves. But for you, what do you kind of miss the most over the last month or so?
1: Oh, absolutely, all that, as you mentioned, Dave, uh, just the day-to-day, preparing for the next game. You know, that's something that we've all done for 20, 25, 30 years. And this is really the first time where we don't know when that next game is going to be. You and I can sit down in September and map out exactly where we're going to be pretty much every hour for the next six months. You have the Golden Night schedule in front of you in, in late August, early September, and you know where you will be on January 7th at 10.30 in the morning on February 22nd at 7 o'clock at night, if it's a game day. So I think that's been the strangest thing is not having that next event to prepare for. And, um, you know, you often have this schedule sort of memorized in your head and you don't even have to look at it on a calendar. But uh, right now that's all up in the air. So I think that's probably the strangest part.
0: I mentioned, Kenny, you do everything. Rangers radio, NHL and NBC, some Knicks games, baseball and football for Fox of that vast array of things. Is there one of those
1: you enjoy the most? You know, I, I get that question often, Dave, and it's, it's almost like asking which kid you like the best. If you have four, um, yeah. and sometimes do you, do you have a do you have a favorite? Kid? Sometimes uh, I only have two, so <laughs> there, would, there would be a 50% chance on picking one of the two, but, um, sometimes it depends also who's asking the question. Um, but, yeah in all seriousness, as a kid growing up, hockey was my favorite sport. I played hockey, wasn't very good. Uh, We did have a club team in high school. And then ironically, my freshman year in college at NYU, New York University, I thought my hockey playing career, uh, you know, even though it was uh, at such a low level, I thought it was done. And my freshman year, another student who was a junior at the time Uh, had put up some flyers around the campus that he wanted to start a club hockey team. It was perfect timing. It was September 86, my freshman year. And uh, I wound up joining the team and played four more years of club hockey. And uh, back then, we were practicing once a week, playing games at midnight, 1 a.m. at at various rinks around New York and New Jersey. Um, Little-known trivia question, I didn't score too many goals, but I did score the first goal in NYU hockey history. Oh, congratulations. Now, currently, they're, they're a pretty good program. They, they've, uh, they've elevated to another level. They won a national championship at the club level a couple of years ago. They have real nice facilities at Chelsea Piers in New York. Here's a funny story for you. So in 2015, if memory serves correct, I was working a Montreal-Tampa Bay playoff game. And I had not yet met John Cooper, who took over... The year before or earlier that year, as, as head coach in Tampa Bay, he had been with Norfolk in the American Hockey League. And I had probably done a couple of games and went to his press conferences, but we never actually had a conversation. And I'm standing with Joe Micheletti, my broadcast partner, that night uh, at the Bell Center in Montreal. And you've been there probably 50 to 100 times in that back area behind the visiting locker room where sometimes they'll hold coach press conferences, sort of in the corridor where the players leave to go to the bus after the game. But John Cooper was having his press conference in that area. And Joe and I waited around. We were going to have some uh, uh, private time with him after, since we were doing the broadcast that night. And again, I had never met John Cooper. And he sees Joe and I standing there, and he says to me, as the other reporters walk away, he says, I need to talk to you when we're done. And I'm thinking to myself, did I say something on the air that perhaps he didn't like i i I can't think of anything that i possibly could have said i was shocked he even knew who i was at that point so joe and i talked to him and and get the usual questions in about his lineup and the game and he's very cordial and answering all the questions and we're done and he says to me uh did you go to school at nyu i said yes he said uh did you play club hockey there yes i did he said uh we played against each other then (laughs) It turns out he went to Hofstra, which I knew. I knew he was a lacrosse player at Hofstra University on Long Island, right across from Nassau Coliseum, the home of the Islanders. And that story had been written. And in doing research, I was well aware that he had been a lacrosse player. And I had no idea that he played club hockey. And now I'm thinking to myself, how do you know that I played club hockey against you 25 to 30 years ago? It turns out a friend of his who had been a teammate of his at Hofstra, who works in the business world somewhere in New York, uh, was aware that I had played for NYU, must have mentioned it to John Cooper one day, and his his buddy said to him, if you ever meet him, you should ask him, mention that we played against each other. So at some point in the late 80s, I played hockey against the head coach of the Tampa Bay Lightning.
0: Has that come up in subsequent conversations? It has, that? yes,
1: yes. We've actually become <laughs> uh, somewhat friendly, and he's brought his son to a couple of Tampa Bay Buccaneers games and visited us up in the broadcast booth and stayed for a quarter. So uh, we've become friendly since that time, but it all started uh, up in Montreal when he mentioned that we played hockey against each other in in college. And I know I'm giving a really long answer to a short question, but um, my goal, all I wanted to do was hockey on the radio. That was my goal uh, through high school and college and was very fortunate, uh, sent out, 20 or 30 tapes back in uh, May of 1990 when I graduated from college. And I had heard from a couple of people. Now, it's a long story, and I know you don't have hours here, but uh, through college I had some internships and and going to school in New York certainly had its advantages. And I wound up filling in on some New York Islander pregame shows on the radio, pre and postgame shows. That actually led to filling in as the play-by-play broadcaster on four games. During my senior year in college. So I was able to actually send out a real NHL tape from a professional broadcast. And I had heard that there was an opening in Baltimore. I knew a couple of people. They knew people. They knew people. So I heard about this opening and sent this Islander Winnipeg tape down from December 2nd, 1989. And wind up getting hired a couple of weeks later. Mike Haynes had been the radio broadcaster in Baltimore moved on to the Capital District Islanders, the New York Islanders affiliate up in Albany, Troy, New York at the time. So that's what led to the opening and was very fortunate to get hired in, in Baltimore at the time back in the summer of 1990 and uh, did play-by-play there for two years and, and similar to what you did in Providence, uh, worked in the team office and did sales and public relations and marketing and picked up players from the airport and waited for... The cable TV guy at at coaches' houses, you know all that stuff that we used to do back in the day, and uh, it was great. It was two years. I would never trade in for anything. Such a great experience. And in high school, uh, I had done a variety of sports. Uh, a really small cable station, Cox Cable, on Great Neck, Long Island, came to my school in tenth grade to film a girls' basketball game, and I volunteered. They didn't have any announcers. They had two cameras. Volunteered, they clipped a microphone on my shirt, did that game, and connected with the producer after the game. And I wound up for the three years of high school working probably 200 games: basketball, baseball, hockey, football, lacrosse, soccer. Didn't get paid, didn't care, just wanted the experience. Brought friends along as color analysts, and um, that really opened my eyes to some of the other uh, sports that were out there in the in the broadcasting world. So when I'm in Baltimore. It's two years of uh, Skipjacks hockey, American Hockey League, on the radio. Wind up getting hired in Washington to do the Capitals' home games on home team sports television. During the years in Baltimore, had gotten to know some of the executives at HTS. They carried the Capitals games. They carried the Skipjacks two or three TV games a year, as I mentioned earlier. Wind up getting hired there. It was a split package. Uh, Jeff Rimmer did the away games on a separate channel, but they wanted to have their own... Uh, specific broadcast for home games, So I wound up working with Craig Laughlin and uh, he was great. Uh, Jeff Rimmer was a good friend. Joe Beninati came in my third year when Jeff moved to Florida. Joe wound up doing, he was originally going to do radio uh, when Ron Weber retired and then Jeff Rimmer winds up leaving for Florida. So Joe Beninati slides in on the TV side and 25 years later, he's still down there. But during those three years at home team sports, uh, they asked me to fill in on on some Orioles baseball games, some Bullets at the time, now Wizards basketball games. And and the huge break was in uh, late 93, early 94, when Rupert Murdoch decides to bid on the NFC football package, which CBS had had for, I think, 37 years. And Fox made the decision. They hired a couple of the veteran broadcast crews from CBS, Hall of Fame guys, Pat Summerall, John Madden, Dick Stockton, and Matt Millen, But they also decided they wanted to go with some younger broadcasters. So myself, Joe Buck, Tom Brennan, and and Kevin Harlan all wind up getting hired at the same time, along with some young color analysts as well. And proud to say that three of us are still at Fox 26 years later. Kevin Harlan's at CBS and Turner. He's had a great career. So uh, we were all really in the right place at the right time. And that led to football and filling in on some basketball and, and baseball at home team sports. It gave me some of that variety um, after starting by doing hockey down in Baltimore.
0: With your dad being a legend in the business, Kenny, and your two uncles, obviously, longtime broadcasters, was there ever much doubt in your mind you were going to try to follow along in that path?
1: Not really in my mind. Um, My parents gave me a tape recorder for my birthday when I was five years old, and I set up my bedroom like a TV studio. I had the desk and the bed in the middle and the TV on the other side. And there was never any pressure. No one ever said, you have to do this. You have to announce games to the tape recorder. Um, it was just something I always wanted to do from a young age. And I would bring the recorder to games at Madison Square Garden, Shea Stadium, find an empty section, sit upstairs somewhere and call the game into a tape recorder. Uh, but never any pressure at all. I always joked that when my uncles came over for holidays or other family occasions, it was almost like the first all sports radio station. I would sit at the table and just soak everything in, listen to the stories that they were telling. Um, it's, it's funny, my uncle Steve emailed me the other day. He was uh, asked by a reporter from Newsday on Long Island for some thoughts. He was involved on the TV side in 1980 when the Islanders won their first Stanley Cup. And they're doing a story on this with the anniversary coming up. And uh, I was 12 back then. And he sent me an email, he said, Do you remember, did I only do the home games or did I do the road games? And who was my color analyst and who did the other games? So I I did some research for him and helped him out uh, for for the article. But uh, no, it was really, uh, it was so much fun listening to all the stories. And then when I was old enough, uh, I started to tag along and sit in the broadcast booth and keep statistics and just learn via osmosis by being there and uh, watching the games and and paying attention to what goes on uh, in the broadcast booth. When did you first realize that
0: your dad did what he does still currently for a living? When did that click in?
1: I I can't remember it really not clicking in ever because he was doing it, obviously, uh, back when I was two, three, four years old. And there are pictures of games that I went to that I don't remember at Madison Square Garden, the old Yankee Stadium. I have no recollection of being at uh, the, the... two Yankee stadiums ago, the one that was demolished after the 74 season. But I do have pictures of myself uh, standing there on the concourse. But so when I was, again, three, four, five years old, it was the early 70s. I vaguely remember uh, being at City Hall in New York for a Knicks championship celebration in 1973. That's one of the early memories I have. Uh, Remember going to a Rangers Flyers afternoon game around that time, 73, 74, when I was five or six years old. But again, when I was young, he was was the radio voice of the Rangers and Knicks, and they did primarily home games back then. The away games were only on TV, on WOR, and the home games were on radio. So he did the home games for both teams on radio. But for my entire childhood, from kindergarten through 12th grade, he was doing the six and eleven o'clock news at WNBC in New York. So many many nights he would go do the he would do the sports at six twenty, uh, hop in the car, head down to MSG for a seven thirty game at the time, work the radio broadcast, and then go back to WNBC for the eleven o'clock news. And it was really all that I ever knew. That's what he did for my entire childhood. And then on the weekends, um, he would do football uh, during September through December for NBC other times of the year, he would do boxing. And then later on would start with the NBA in the late eighties, early nineties when I was older. Um, but it was great. I, I would get to tag along and go on these road trips. I spent a lot of days at WNBC and he'd take me into the David Letterman studio whenever he made a guest appearance on that show. And I happened to be with him. So, uh, just so many fond memories of, of the games. And I started doing stats for him on Rangers Radio when I was in high school, and then I would do the Knicks stats in college with him um, over on the TV side. Uh, I always joke that I retired as a statistician. It was actually after my second year in Baltimore. I had already gotten hired in Washington to do the Capitals games, but I came out of retirement and I worked the stats with him in Barcelona at the Dream Team Olympic basketball game. So I was in Barcelona, Spain for two weeks. So that was my uh, that was my finale as far as uh, being a statistician. It's a way to go out with a bag. Exactly. Like Front, row seat. Gig, Front right? row seat. Front row seat for all right. the Dream Team That's games. Right. Did you, when you decided,
0: and you mentioned there really was never any doubt in your mind, you wanted to pursue this for a career, but even you mentioned you did a lot in high school and then uh, in college as well. How much early on did you seek your dad's advice, pick his brain about the business? Or, you know, You mentioned there was no pressure, but how much did you kind of seek his input back then?
1: It was really more via osmosis. I would just watch the, the preparation, the amount of hours he put into it. Once I started doing the games in high school, he would watch some of the tapes with me and, and give advice. And in college, we had a, a very good Division three basketball program at NYU. There was no football, no baseball. They have baseball now and hockey. It was club level and I played on the team, so we didn't broadcast the games. But um, one of the reasons I actually went there I had two criteria leading into college. Uh, One, I didn't want to be away from an NHL city for four years. So I was looking at schools in Boston and Washington, um, Maryland area, and New York sort of came into my mind late in the game after I met a couple of people that went to NYU and were involved uh, with the school there. But I also felt that, and there are some great schools out there, uh, Syracuse, Fordham, uh, Northwestern, BU, Hofstra that have tremendous broadcasting programs but I had also heard that if you go to one of those schools you might not get the opportunity to be on air until your junior or senior year. There might be a hundred kids that want to do sports on the radio at NYU there were five or six of us and we were all friends and even though the sports were at a division three level um, it was exciting. We would travel. They were in a conference called the University Athletic Association. we go to Boston, Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, Pittsburgh uh, to broadcast some of the away games, men's and women's basketball. But we all got to do everything during our freshman year on. One of us would do play-by-play. One would do color. One would uh, run the board back at the station. One would handle the stats. So. You didn't have to fight for airtime. Now, we had a, we did have to fight for airtime with the DJs. It was primarily a music station. And uh, Tabitha Soren, who went on to become uh, a VJ on MTV, uh, she was one of the uh, DJs at the station at the time. And, uh, you know, she had her own music show. And I remember we, we just have to fight for the time uh, for the two hours to do a basketball game on a Tuesday night or a Friday night. But we wound to working it out. Most of the games did get on live, but... Um, as far as getting experience right from freshman year, it was perfect with only five or six of us at a huge school who were interested in sports broadcasting.
0: You mentioned your time in Baltimore, uh, two years with the Skipjacks and I wonder if you could share with us the relationship with Barry Trotz and how special that was back then and
1: still is to this day. Well, when I was hired in the summer of 90, I was 22 years old and I think the first time I met Barry was at a barbecue that summer, which was thrown by somebody from our office. And Rob Laird was the head coach. He was actually announced uh, the same day that I was hired. He had been a coach in Fort Wayne with the Fort Wayne Comets. He had played there for many years. He was an assistant coach with Washington. Uh, He's gone on to win two Stanley Cup rings as a pro scout with the LA Kings. I still run into him in press boxes all over the NHL. So Rob was our head coach. He was probably in his mid-30s at the time. And Washington brought in as an assistant in Baltimore a 27-year-old who had been a scout for a couple of years for the Capitals, a Western scout in Western Canada named Barry Trotz. And I remember first meeting Barry at this barbecue over the summer. And then as it got closer to the season, uh, they told me that uh, once we start traveling to save money on the road, you're going to room with the assistant coach. So... In some cases, with other teams, it was the broadcaster with the bus driver. But for us in Baltimore, and nothing against our our bus driver at the time, who was nicknamed Froggy, and he was a tremendous guy, drove us for the two years I was there. But uh, I roomed with Barry Trotz for the two years I was in Baltimore, every road trip. And the second year, 91-92, in February, uh, they made a coaching change, and Rob Laird was let go. Barry Trotz took over as head coach. And I'll never forget, he said to me, we can't break the karma. We still have to room together. And you know, there, there are so many stories, and, and he's one of the greatest people in the world. And I know that uh, many of your listeners uh, probably don't uh, share the same feelings I do because he was the head coach of the Capitals when they beat the Golden Knights for the Stanley Cup in 2018. Uh, but he's just a tremendous person. Um, if you met him on the street, you would have no idea that he's uh, – Not only an NHL coach, but one of the four winningest coaches in all time. And oh, by the way, one of the other names in that list, Joel Quenville, was a skipjack for 40 games during my first season. So on that team bus, we had Barry Trotz and Joel Quenville together, and they are now two of the top four, along with uh, Scotty Bowman and Ken Hitchcock, winningest coaches in NHL history. Uh, there, there are so many stories. Uh, we made the playoffs the first year in 1991 when Barry was the assistant coach. Lost to the Binghamton Rangers in six games. They had Ty Domi and a number of other familiar names. Peter Laviolette may have been on that Binghamton team at the time. Uh, David Quinn had spent some time there during the regular season. So I can't remember the name of the hotel. I could picture it. You probably stayed there many times in Binghamton. Uh, an old classic hotel. And... We were up there for games one and two, so we stayed over, lost game one, had an off day the next day, and then game two the day after that, and one of Barry's uh, jobs as the assistant coach, he had to edit together, splice together uh, some of the tape from the game the night before, and it was a VHS tape, the home team would uh, provide this for the visiting team, and Barry traveled two VCRs, and he would play the tape of the game on one of them, and then splice uh, together, whether it was the power play, all of the power plays, all of the penalty kills, faceoffs, he would have to spend a few hours after each game in the hotel room editing together those situations onto a fresh tape for Rob Laird for the team meeting the next morning. And this one night in Binghamton, we lost the first playoff game. Uh, everybody's upset and bitter. And Barry's sitting on his bed. It was a small room. We each had our own bed, but it was a small room. And he's editing together. Uh, the, the power play and the penalty kill from the game and all of a sudden the tape gets caught, tape gets stuck. And <laughs> anyone who remembers VHS tapes, it's happened to all of us. And fortunately, in the antiquated box of radio equipment that I used to have to carry around to get the games on the air, I had a little screwdriver and that screwdriver saved, <laughs> saved Barry's job that day, saved the tape because somehow and I feel bad I fell asleep he was up to like four in the morning and I remember waking up early the next day and everything was fixed and it took him like five hours he didn't get any sleep that night but thanks to that screwdriver he was able to fix the VCR and get the tape uh piece back together so uh great memories just a tremendous person uh great family he has four kids I knew his wife back when they were first married uh during the time in Baltimore and uh you know, uh, I probably told you the story somewhere along the line, but uh, the one that Barry always loves to tell. Well, there are two others, uh, and I'll keep them short. But one has to do with a road trip in Utica. We got in at three in the morning, and it's snowing and it's freezing, and we have a first floor room at the Holiday Inn in Utica, New York, and uh, the heat's not working, and the snow's coming in underneath the door, and we're, we're shivering, and uh, we wind up sleeping in our clothing, in our in our suits basically, and w- with our winter coats and. When Barry tells the story now, 30 years later, he claims that I asked him to cuddle in the middle of the night, but I can assure you that was not the case. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, March 92, so earlier in the season, I used to interview one of the two coaches for a pregame show, and Barry said something prior to one of the games that came out funny. I forget what it was, but came out kind of funny, and I didn't use it on the air, but I made the mistake of playing it for a couple of the players. So word got back to him, and he tells me on the bus after the game, I heard you thought that was funny and you played it for a couple of the guys. I'm gonna get you back at some point. So I forget about it. And uh, four months later, we're on the only uh, trip during the course of the entire season, uh, during which we flew. We were not on the bus. We actually took airplanes up to the maritime provinces in Canada. So we had to fly all day. We left from Baltimore, traveled to Boston, to Halifax, and then to Sydney, Nova Scotia. Three flights, small planes, And we had heard that our luggage, personal luggage, was probably not going to make it on all three flights and we get it the next day. It would be delivered to the hotel. And the hockey equipment was the priority. The equipment, the sticks, was pretty much all that made it into the cargo hold. So late afternoon, we finally get to Halifax, connect to Sydney, and we get off on the tarmac. It's a really small airport. And there's a gentleman holding a clipboard down at the bottom of the steps. And I get to the bottom and he points and he says, is this you, is this your name? Yes, it is. You have to come with me. So I thought that they needed me to identify what some of the luggage looked like since it wouldn't come in until the next day. And I kind of knew what everybody had uh, brought with them. So they bring me into this room and there are two older gentlemen and they start questioning me. Can we see your passport? Is your passport valid? Have you ever been arrested? Do you know anyone that's in trouble? And I'm answering all the questions uh, to my knowledge. Uh, I don't know anyone that's in trouble. I've never been arrested. My passport should be valid. And then they say, "Okay, come with us." And they put me into an official-looking car. I knew I wasn't being kidnapped. They had credentials, and it was an official-looking car. And I'm in the back, and there was some computer equipment up front. So they start asking me more questions, and some of the same questions, and. At this point, I'm not thinking that this is a practical joke and someone set me up. I'm thinking to myself, I'm answering these questions honestly, but I have no idea what's going on here. And after about 15 minutes, they pull up to what looks like a hotel. And it turns out it was the team hotel. And they said, we have one final question. Do you know Jimmy Wiseman? Jimmy was the longtime security uh, man for the Washington Capitals. And we all knew him and he's still there to this day. And he's a great guy. and A big practical joker, and it turns out after uh, I played that tape for some of the players with Barry Trotz's flub, uh, he coordinated with Jimmy Weissman, whose brother happened to be a police chief up in Sydney, Nova Scotia. It turns out they did this or something similar to one person every year, to a new player, a new trainer, a new broadcaster, but they would keep it a secret, so you would never hear about it from past years, and I was the victim back in March of 92. So
0: no time in jail, no arrest. No, actually, a, uh, yeah.
1: the the funny, uh, funny ribbon to put on the story is that uh, the team bus actually got lost. So I arrived at the hotel prior to the team getting there, and I was up in the room, and Barry walked in, and I think he was surprised to see me there at that point.
0: Yep. Uh, great stuff for your time in baltimore and you know we were all fortunate enough you know your barry trotts relationship probably is kind of similar to my peter laviolette one right with time in the ahl and although we never roomed together fortunately but those are the people that you know you formed these bonds with uh in your time in the american hockey league um two years in baltimore kenny but i want to i want to throw a date out at you june 14th 1994 so rangers had
1: a 54 year drought where were you that night Well, it's another crazy story. So I I was in the building working for NHL Radio, and the way that came about, I was in my second year in Washington doing the Capitals on the TV side. And I was a Vancouver Canucks fan growing up. For some strange reason, growing up in New York with a father who worked for the Rangers, I was a huge Canucks fan. I had scrapbooks, and I would... uh, try to listen to games, Hartford, Chuck Caton. And I've told Chuck the story. We had one radio in the kitchen that would pick up the Hartford Whaler station. And anytime they played the Canucks, I would sit there listening to Chuck and I'd have a scorecard and listen for two and a half, three hours. So I would try to find as much Canucks information as possible. So here we are in 93-94. I'm working for the Washington Capitals at the time. In the conference final... In the East, you have the New York Rangers against the Devils, and I grew up going to so many Ranger games and keeping the stats and sitting in the broadcast booth, so they were my second favorite team. So they're playing the Devils. And then you have the Canucks on the other side, uh, who were my favorite team as a youngster. And the Canucks, if I remember correctly, won their series first, so they advanced into the Cup Final. But about a week before that, so probably around game three of both conference final series. And this is back in 94. I'm living in Rockville, Maryland. ESPN has the national NHL package. But for some reason, every game of those conference final series was not on in the Washington area. They would get preempted for other events on ESPN. So during that classic rangers Devil series, I was only able to watch like three or four of the seven games. I remember going to dinner with friends and calling friends in New York just to get score updates. It wasn't that long ago, but I couldn't see every game of that series. But around game three, uh, you know, it looks like if things play out, it could be the Rangers and Vancouver in the Stanley Cup final. And I'm working not only at home team sports at the time, but WTOP radio in Washington doing sports updates during the day from uh, noon until 7. So I'm there every day. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, I wonder if I'd be able to even make it up to one game if if the Rangers make it to the Stanley Cup just as a fan. And I'll never forget, um, I'm at WTOP one afternoon and the year before uh, NHL Radio, I think it was their first year, uh, Greg Baldinger was the producer, and Howie Rose, a great friend who was doing the Rangers radio at the time and went on to do the Islanders for many years and a terrific voice of the Mets. um, He and Mike Keenan had worked NHL radio in 93 during the uh, Canadians King series so I hadn't really followed what was going to happen with NHL radio in 94 Mike Keenan was coaching the Rangers but Howie was certainly still available and I get a phone call from uh, my agent at the time Alan Sanders and he said to me uh, Howie Rose was actually represented by someone else at Alan's office athletes and artists at the time and it turns out that uh, they were getting a little bit nervous. If the Rangers make it to the Stanley Cup final, we need someone else to do play-by-play because Howie has to work the Rangers broadcasts. So Alan calls me up that day and says, uh, how would you like to be on standby if the Rangers make the Stanley Cup final? Howie can't do it. So, of course, you know, at that point, not only will I do it for free, I'll pay them to let me do it. I'm 26 years old. It could be. My two favorite teams in the Stanley Cup Final, and I get to call it an NHL radio. So now I'm heavily rooting for the Rangers um, to beat the Devils. And, uh, of course, the Devils took a 3-2 lead in the series. And Game 6 was the Marc Messier guarantee game. And that game was on. I I distinctly remember watching it in my apartment in Rockville, Maryland. Game 7 was on as well, which was the Stephon Matteau game. So the Rangers are winning. Uh, by a goal in the final seconds and I'm seconds away from getting this assignment to do the Rangers Canucks in the final and Valerie Zellepukin scores with 7.7 seconds left now people that were in the building have told me that during the intermission between the third period and and the first overtime it it was like zombies were walking around all of the Ranger fans who were 7.7 seconds away from going to the Stanley Cup final and the Devils tied the game and Neither team scores in the first overtime. And I'll never forget how nervous I was watching this game because my next two weeks depended on it getting a chance to live a dream and work a series for the Stanley Cup between my two favorite teams. So Stefan Matteau winds up scoring the goal in the double overtime. I'm jumping up and down in my bedroom in my apartment <laughs> and uh, wind up working that series on the radio with Sherry Ross, who was the longtime New Jersey Devils color analyst and a great hockey writer for the New York Daily News. So it's three to one. Uh, The Canucks win game one in overtime. Greg Adams scores an overtime goal. Rangers win the next three. Game two at home, games three and four. We're out in Vancouver. They win those games. And game five, June 9th, 1994, at MSG. And I'll never forget that day. It was a beautiful day. It was about a 90-degree day in Manhattan. And on the front page of the New York Post, It basically gave the Rangers the victory in Game 5 that morning. The Stanley Cup was on the front page. It said the Cup is ours. Everybody expected the Rangers to win that night. They had won the last three games. They were on a roll. So as it turns out, uh, a very good friend of mine from Baltimore, Jerry Coleman, who still does radio down there, he's been in the business for 30 years. Um, We were uh, good friends. It turns out his father... When I first met Jerry in 90, his father was a minority owner of the Skipjacks. He was a businessman in Baltimore. So we had a couple of different connections. We had some mutual friends. His father is a minority owner of the Skipjacks. We become good friends. We did a radio show together in 91, 92. He went on to do his own show. He's worked at many different stations down in Baltimore since then. So through those years, the... Four years uh, after I first met Jerry, 90 through 94, he had mentioned uh, his collegiate days at Ithaca College. And he mentioned uh, these three girls, roommates who he happened to be pretty good friends with. So in 94, during that Eastern Conference final, Stanley Cup final time, Jerry was asked to do a voiceover for an Olympic uh, style video game. The Winter Olympics had just taken place in 94. And it was the Peter Forsberg goal to win the gold medal. And somebody he knew asked him to come to New York for a couple of days and do a voiceover uh, based on those 94 Winter Olympics for some kind of a, either a video game or a display that was going to be uh, up in New York commemorating the Olympics. So he happens to be in New York on June 9th. And he says to me, uh, I'm having dinner with some of my college friends and uh, call me after the game. If you're not doing anything, you can meet up with us. So... The Rangers fall behind 3-0 in game five. They come back to tie the game at three and wind up losing 6-3. Rangers tied at three. Dave Babbage scores immediately. Canucks score two more goals. Rangers lose game five. If they had won, I probably would have stuck around MSG, gone to some kind of a party, Stanley Cup celebrations. They wind up losing the game. So I call Jerry from a payphone at the msg at the auxiliary press room that they had set up no cell phones at the time i call my answering machine in maryland because he had left a message there with the phone number at the apartment he was at so i call him up at this apartment they had gone to dinner and he went back with these friends from college to one of the girls apartments he says why don't you come up you know i could we could see each other for an hour and then uh, i have an early train tomorrow so i wound up going to this apartment and uh That night for the first time, I meet the person who turns out to be my wife for the last 24 years. So we only met because the Rangers lost to the Canucks in game five on June 9th, 1994. So a big
0: loss for the Rangers that night, but a big win for you.
1: Right, and then I flew to Vancouver the next day and uh, flew back home and invited her to the Knicks-Houston game uh, in the NBA Finals, which was June 12th on the Sunday Um, I knew she was a big basketball fan and um, the Knicks were playing a huge game that night and I guess technically that was the first date, but then we wound up uh, really not communicating again for like four or five months. I was back down in Washington and uh, we were kind of living our own lives, but two nights later, June 14th was when the Rangers did win the Cup in game seven and uh, just such a memorable night. It was so hot in the building. It was a a summer day basically and you know, I think back to the fan that had the sign, now I can die in peace, and the celebrations that took place. Though no, I was still a Capitals announcer at the time, but I was, even though I had been a Canucks fan, I wanted the Rangers to win at that point because I wanted to see what it would be like in Madison Square Garden if the Rangers ever did win a Stanley Cup. And then a year and a half later, uh, less than a year and a half later, I wind up uh, again through another crazy set of circumstances. Uh, Howie Rose, I had been offered... Two other jobs, believe it or not, in New York in the summer of 95. And I'm not going to mention who the offers came from, but I wound up turning them down uh, to stay in Washington. I had a great situation down there. I love living in the DC area. I was doing the Capitals games and filling in on some of the other sports and uh, really enjoyed it. Figured I'd be there for the rest of my professional life. So turned down two other jobs in New York. And then ironically, Howie Rose gets offered the Islanders slash Mets TV jobs on Sports Channel, leaving the Rangers uh, radio job open. And even though I had turned down these other two jobs, which were on the TV side, I felt like I couldn't really pass it up. Um, It had been in the family for 35 years. And um, Rangers radio, I always say, is sort of like doing TV for many other NHL teams because there's such a wide audience, original six team team. Etc. So, uh, wound up moving back up to New York in September of '95. So,
0: a couple of more things I wanted to get to to you uh, with Kenny. The focus of being an announcer for a team in New York, and you saw your dad, you know, go through this for years, right, with the Rangers and the Knicks. What's that like on a daily basis? You know, the microscope and being in the you know the number one media market in the country.
1: You know, it's funny, Dave, because radio sort of flies under the radar, and I'm sure you felt the same way in Boston. I've done the Rangers on the radio now for 25 years. Um, However, uh, unless you're a rabid fan, you're probably not listening to hockey on the radio, so it's probably a little different uh, being involved so closely on the radio side. I do fill in on about 20 Knicks games a year, as you mentioned, uh, and I've done that for the last eight or nine years with Walt Clyde Frazier, who's just unbelievable to work with one of the greatest players of all time in franchise history if not the best and uh i'm sure even your listeners are aware of uh his wardrobe which is out there on the internet Uh, he owns 125 suits never wears the same one twice over the course of one season he has a tremendous vocabulary and he tries to rhyme things throughout the game so um i do get the uh Uh, you know, the TV uh, sense of how things are in New York uh, during those 20 Nick games. And then uh, working some of the other sports, uh, football, I usually work three or four New York Giants games a year on the TV side. And of course, during the hockey playoffs as well. But as far as uh, the day-to-day working for a team uh, with the Rangers, it's been mostly on the radio side, which, as I said, kind of flies under the radar a little bit.
0: So one of the get your thoughts on the Olympics you've worked, am I right? Five winter Olympics and, yes. a, and a summer, summer Olympics as well. Um, what's that like to work the Olympic
1: games? Well, the first, which is also a crazy story, uh, 2002 in, uh, Salt Lake city. Um, it's about a week to 10 days before the start of the Olympics. And I get a phone call and it was Alan Sanders again, who, you know, very well. Um, Turns out, uh, and this story has been well documented. It's been written about. Uh, Doc Emmerich had to pull out uh, because of the situation with his dog at the time. His dog was uh, very sick, and Doc and his wife own horses and dogs and real animal lovers. And they're they're just uh, you know terrific the work that they do with animals. And uh, Doc had to pull out about a week before. So I wound up getting this call to come out of the bullpen uh, to go to Salt Lake. And Gary Thorne was the other uh, hockey announcer that had been hired for NBC. So he moved up into Doc's role, and then I did a lot of the women's games and some men's games in uh, 2002. And it was just an unbelievable experience as the other four uh, uh, Winter Olympics have been as well. Um, 2006 in Torino, and then Vancouver, Sochi, and Pyeongchang in Korea. And the thing about the Olympics is, as crazy as our lives are, uh, when you're at the Olympics, at least you're in the same hotel room for two weeks. You're not flying, you're not traveling around, so you do sort of have a home base. But then, uh, with hockey, normally you're working almost every day, two games, uh, whether there are two or three play-by-play announcers there. Uh, you'll have a game at, at 11 o'clock in the morning and then another one at 3, or a game at 12 and another one at 7. And there were some days where, where I've done three hockey games in one day at the Olympics. And that first... Uh, Olympics In 2002, I worked primarily with Joe Micheletti, who is a great friend of both of ours and one of the top hockey analysts out there. And I remember we worked 23 games in 13 days. And I I, I would guess it was about 12 to 14 women's games and maybe eight or nine men's games. And uh, I'll never forget that one of the first women's games. Now, I I came in late to the party, uh, hired a week before, so I didn't have all this time to study rosters and get information together. And uh, I think I was watching the Rams Patriots Super Bowl. Does that make sense? Would that have been in yeah in sure, 2002. late January 2002? The Vinatieri yep. kick. Yeah, that was right around the time when I got the call. And I, I was sitting right here in this same home office, and I had the the uh, Super Bowl up on the TV, and I was doing all this preparation. I still remember that it was during that game when I did a lot of the initial prep work for that Olympics. But one of the first games was. Uh, a women's game between the U.S. and China. And as you can imagine, we didn't have much access to information from the Chinese women's hockey team at the time. We had a roster. A lot of the names kind of looked the same on paper when you first looked at them. Somebody came out to the booth about five minutes before the game and handed me a pronunciation guide, so that was helpful. (laughs) But the good news was in the first period, the USA had the puck for just about the entire time. So we really didn't have to mention too many of the names. The goaltender was nicknamed the great wall and she made a number of tremendous saves and AJ Malesko actually played in that game. Who's become a great friend to both of us and uh, does tremendous work for NBC and for MSG with the New York Islanders. And uh, she played in those Olympics in 2002. She played in that game and then became my partner on women's hockey in the last four. Um, Now, once the NHL uh, players started playing uh, in 98 and then for the first four that I worked in 2 6, 10, and 14, that made it a lot easier uh, on the men's side because you're so familiar with with those players. However, uh, once in a while you get a game involving a Belarus or an Austria or a Norway that didn't really have too many NHL players. So those were a little bit trickier as far as studying and memorizing the names and numbers and finding information I think it was before Sochi. I knew I had a bunch of Norway games on the schedule. I went to a Rangers practice and I asked Matt Zuccarello if he had a couple of minutes. And I handed him the sheet with the Norway roster. And I said, and he was on the team. I said, can you tell me a little bit about some of these guys? He knew everybody. A number of them had been past teammates of his, one player was his half brother. Another Perfect. another guy he grew up with since second grade. So, if anybody watched that Norway game, so much of that information was uh, was passed along by by the greatest Norwegian hockey player of all time. <laughs> and you were right on it, right? You had all the background. Hey, you have to go that's... to you know any, any resource you can. In fact, in 2018, of course, the NHL players did not go. Uh, the current NHL players and the gold medal game and and Doc did not work uh, in 2018 so I wound up doing the gold medal game on both the men's and women's side and the women's uh, victory over Canada I put that up as far as my top five broadcasts of all time as far as uh, the excitement and what the game meant it it was just tremendous and uh, it was replayed a couple of weeks ago and it was fun to really watch the entire game for the first time but on the men's side it was uh, as they were called then the Olympic athletes from Russia against Germany and again using relationships Mike Polino had been an assistant coach with the Rangers under Tom Rennie and I stayed in contact with Mike and he coached in Russia for a number of years still did this past season in the KHL went over with Mike Keenan they won a championship Mike won another championship Uh, Mike Polino did uh, without Mike Keenan and uh, I had been emailing with Mike during the Olympics and it turns out a good friend of his, who he had coached with in the KHL, Ilya Vorobyev, was the head coach of the Russian team. And uh, Mike Polino set us up, and I wound up FaceTiming with Ilya Vorobyev, whose English was pretty good. We FaceTimed the night before, and Mike had filled him in that he could trust me and that I was a friend. And I uh, just wanted to get some information on his team, nothing really too deep, no secrets. But uh, we wound up setting up at the Olympics... It's not like the NHL where you can just go into the locker room after a practice and talk to players and coaches. At the Olympics, there's a separation. And there's a mixed zone where you can go after practices and games, but you might only get one or two players. And you can't speak to people as freely as you can you know, during the typical NHL season. So I was able to set up uh, with Ilya Vorobiev, thanks to Mike Polino. Uh, can we meet tomorrow at 12.15? I'll meet you in the hallway nearest to your locker room, but it's the only place I can really get to. And he wound up coming down, and I'll never forget, he told me, he said, he said, we're not taking this German team lightly. Everybody thought the Russian team were the heavy favorites. And Marco Sturm, who you know well, uh, coached yeah. the German team. And we had we had a great chat with Marco after the practice the day before. He spent like a half an hour with us and gave us so much tremendous information. But Ilya Vorobiev said, we're not taking this German team lightly. Uh, they're very good, and I actually said that during the first period and, you know, a couple of people chuckled, you know, what's he talking about? Russia's going to kill them. They wound up going to overtime. So Marco Sturm did a great job, but it's those relationships that you build up, uh, you know, through others in the business that uh, leads you to uh, be able to uh, compile some of that information. But the Olympics are so much fun. It's you go on adrenaline, you only sleep four or five hours a night because you might have two games one day, get back at 11 o'clock at night and then you have to prepare for two games the next day, teams you might not have seen. So, um, but it's it's, uh, it's just so much
0: fun to be a part of. Well, I have two more items I wanted to get to, uh, Kenny. You mentioned that the women's gold medal game between uh, the U.S. and Canada uh, being one of the, the most exciting events you've ever worked. And, you know, fans around the country have, have enjoyed your work here for so many years. If you were going to put together a list of maybe the games that jump out to the forefront of your memory and all you've done, what would you know? top two, three, four be on that list, do you think?
1: Well, we, we've talked about a couple of them. I would have to put the Rangers winning the Cup in 94 uh, right up there, the women's gold medal game in, in 2018 for sure. Um, in football, I had the good fortune to work five divisional playoff games. Uh, the first one was in the snow in Green Bay with Brett Favre against Seattle. That was a lot of fun. Uh, The most recent one was in 2012. It was a New Orleans-San Francisco game out of Candlestick. Alex Smith and Drew Brees were the quarterbacks, and the teams combined to score four touchdowns in the last four minutes. It was just back and forth. Tremendous game. Um, I worked one Super Bowl, the world feed, the international feed, which was not on anywhere in the United States. Uh, The most recent, and I apologize to you as a New Englander that I've now brought up, (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, no, the, the, the previous New England Super Bowl I brought up was a win, so that was okay. Thank you. But, but now I'm mentioning a loss. It was Super Bowl 46, Uh the most recent Giants-Patriots Super Bowl in Indianapolis. Worked that on the uh, international side with Joe Thiesman, who's a great partner. I do some preseason games with him as well. So uh, those would be the NFL games. And uh, one I get asked about all the time, I don't do as much baseball as the other sports probably 10 to 12 regular season games. And then I've worked playoffs, uh, I think four of the last five years, but a game that I get asked about all the time, in particular on social media, uh, the Jose Bautista bat flip and home run in 2015 against the Texas Rangers. I was there for that one uh, with Harold Reynolds and Tom Verducci in the booth. And it was a crazy seventh inning. It went, I think 43 minutes. There was all kinds of uh, stuff going on involving uh, the rule book and, uh, catcher interference and, and some home runs and the crowd was getting uh, really rowdy and it was just so loud. It was late afternoon at Rogers Center, the old Sky Dome in Toronto. So um, again, I'd have to say the, the Rangers winning the cup, the Women's Olympic gold medal game in 2018, uh, the football playoff games I mentioned and then the, uh, the Batista home run. Those are games that I worked. Um, as far as games that I was in the audience for not working, uh, the dream team games that I mentioned earlier, the Crosby overtime goal, I was actually sitting behind Doc Emmerich and Eddie Olchek uh, for that one. And also having the opportunity to work uh, the Stanley Cup final on Westwood One the last four years. Uh, You're a part of that with us in uh, the games in Vegas, even though you guys lost. What an unbelievable atmosphere. Uh, There's it, been a three year stretch. Nashville, Golden Knights, and St. Louis Blues all making those runs in the Western Conference to the Stanley Cup final and having the opportunity to call a number of the second and third round games on TV and then the final games on radio in those three cities, uh, just tremendous memories.
0: Last one I had for you, Kenny, is we've all enjoyed your work over all these years over across all the sports. When you're not doing games, who do you like listening to? Who do you enjoy their call of you know how they do it, And regardless of what the sport might be?
1: Dave Gosher and Shane Knight are number one, for sure. <laughs> They'll love listening to you guys. The, the check's in the mail. Just give me your home address and <laughs> we're done here. <laughs> I would say, and I never miss Gary Lawless between periods as well. No, you,
0: you can skip Shane and I as long as you listen to Gary.
1: You know, one thing we have not covered, uh, and I'm sure most of your listeners are, are well aware of Steve Carp who covered the Golden Knights during the inaugural season. Uh, when I was 11 years old, Steve Carp was my camp counselor at Kutcher Sports Academy in Monticello, New York. So <laughs> I, I just had to bring that up before we finish up. Sure. Yeah. But uh, among, you know, the national announcers, aside from family members, um, Al Michaels has always been a favorite. I think he's the best all time uh, doing football, the Miracle on Ice call, uh, baseball World Series back in the 80s and early 90s. So, uh, he's certainly up there. Um, you know, always loved the Vince Scullies and, and Dick Enbergs, Marty Glickmans from from back in the day. But among the current guys, um, I would say among the national guys, Mike Tirico and uh, Joe Buck and Ian Eagle, uh, Doc Emmerich, of course, is, is one of my favorites of all time, you know, the best guy to ever do hockey. Um, but, you know, you and I watch and listen to a lot of hockey games, so really enjoy So many of the local broadcasters out there as well. And, uh, you know, during this quarantine time, going through the office, going through pictures, I actually found a photo from the first night you and I ever met. It's not of (laughs) us, but uh, a mutual friend, Ed Quinlan, invited me up to the Rhode Island Sports Hall of Fame. And I don't know if you remember this. It was the night the Red Wings beat the Capitals to win the Stanley Cup. And Vladimir Konstantinov, 98, Vladimir Konstantinov uh, came onto the ice in the wheelchair. He was injured in the accident the year before after they beat the Flyers. But but I remember going back to the hotel room after the awards dinner and watching the Red Wings win the Cup in Washington. So it's June of 98, and uh, I presented an award to Brian Berard at the Rhode Island Sports Hall of Fame dinner. And I have a photo of of Brian and I, but uh, that's the night that you and I were first introduced by our mutual friend, Ed Quinlan. Wow, it's amazing we've known each other for this long a period of time.
0: Really, really is. 23 years. Crazy. Yeah. Well, I consider myself uh, lucky in that front, Kenny. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for doing this. It's been a real treat.
1: Well, Dave, uh, miss seeing you in Boston as Eastern Conference rivals of the Rangers. We'd always get together three or four times a year. Now it's only twice a year, but uh, hopefully we're back at hockey ring soon. And uh, like I said, Vegas is always one of my favorite spots. So say hello to Shane and Gary and the gang, and uh, hopefully we'll see you real soon. Will do. Thanks again.
0: And we thank Kenny Albert for joining us, one of the preeminent broadcasters in the business, as part of our interview series on the Sheriff, Lawless, and Some Guy Named A podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.